0: Welcome to the I Believe Podcast, an Cure Insight production, brought to you by Castle Biosciences. I'm your host, Danae Peterson, a fellow ocular melanoma survivor. Here on the podcast, we'll be sharing information and insights on treatments, research, and living with ocular melanoma.
1: Castle Biosciences is a proud sponsor of this I Believe Podcast. Castle Biosciences tests are designed to provide clinicians precise and personalized tumor information for the benefit of patient care. If you would like more information about how Castle is transforming the treatment of eye cancer, visit castletestinfo.com.
0: Okay, I want to go ahead and welcome you guys to the I Believe podcast. Um, I am joined here today with Katie Wilson, who is a fellow ocular melanoma patient, and she's going to tell us a little bit about her journey, Um, but before we have her tell us about her journey and talk about when tragedy becomes the teacher, I want to just kind of share a little about what she believes in and the things that she is working on currently in her research. Um, So Katie believes that the greatest outcomes grow from the most challenging circumstances and that we as adults can transform these challenges into profound learning experiences, She is currently a PhD student at the University of Idaho in the Adult Organized Learning and Leadership Program. Her research focus is on human flourishing, specifically eudaimonia, um, following tragic life experiences. Katie is also an instructor of psychology at the North Idaho College, and she resides in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, with her husband, two children. Um, and she is a survivor also of ocular melanoma. and she volunteers as an advocate and fundraiser volunteers as an advocate and fundraiser for ocular melanoma patients. Her purpose is to assist her fellow survivors in living their absolute best and most meaningful lives. So we're so glad to have Katie here with us. Um, let's go ahead and I'm gonna just bring up her slides so that they are ready for her. Um, let's see, screen share. And these slides, if you are on the podcast itself, you're going to be able to see these slides um, once you are not this slide. Whoops, forgot. We have to hit the Chrome tab. Um, You're going to be able to see these slides on the podcast if you go and click the show notes. Um, This will show the show notes uh, so that you can click the recording and you'll see the visual of these slides. Okay. So Katie, I'm going to kick it over to you and I'm going to mute myself unless I have a question and we will, we will go from there.
1: Okay. Thank you so much for that. So, um, my life circumstances have changed just a little tiny bit since the introduction. So I am teaching, um, psychology. And in addition to that, I went back to being a clinical therapist, which I hadn't done For about five or six years i missed it so much i wanted to get back into the field so in addition to teaching um, i'm now a clinical therapist and i am again working with clients who have experienced emotional trauma so i'm back to doing what i love to do and i feel like i'm in such a good place emotionally that i can go back to being a therapist Um, so the reason that i originally stopped and went into teaching was because of my own trauma around ocular melanoma. So I'm happy to say that I'm back in the field and teaching and I get to do both of my passions and I am just, I'm over the moon about it. So thank you for the introduction. And um, I just want to start out a little bit before I get into my research with my own story of ocular melanoma, because it hasn't always been uh, easy. And I experienced uh, quite a bit of my own trauma, not only with the diagnosis and the treatment, Um, I found out that I had the very aggressive form, Um, but with living with the aftermath and going through scans every six months, and uh, as survivors know, there is a lot of trauma involved, but as I've learned through my research with trauma comes a lot of uh, personal growth or what we refer to as post-traumatic growth. So it was about, I'm almost to my five-year Diagnosis date, so that means that once I hit five years, um, my odds of survival and not getting metastasis improve. So that's a big anniversary for me that I'm really excited for. So about five, yeah, so about five years ago, um, I started having some real weird problems with my vision, and went to just a routine eye exam and told the eye doctor what was going on, and he said, "Well, your retina looks like it's detaching." And it's not a big deal. And interestingly enough, I remember saying to the doctor, "Just as long as I don't go blind, tell me I'm not going to go blind." And he assured me that I wasn't going to go blind. Little did he know, um, because this is so rare, not a lot of a lot of eye doctors have even much experience with it. So he sent me to a retinal specialist, and um, she had no idea what was going on. She actually thought it might be a health problem that I had high blood pressure. I remember her saying, "You just have some blood vessels going on in the back of your eye, so it might be." the beginning of diabetes, It might be high blood pressure, which I thought was really strange because I'd always been really healthy. I'd never had any health problems in my life up until then. So she sent me to a couple doctors. They couldn't find anything wrong with me and said, you know what, as far as we can tell, you're really healthy. And I had just run a marathon. So I was feeling probably um, at my best to be totally honest for that first little while. Um, So after going through a number of practitioners, um, I was sent back to a retinal specialist who, he'd been on vacation, he came back in, he'd been there for a long time. And I, uh, remember this as being probably the beginning of the trauma because one of the things that I came to recognize was that, um, the delivery of a devastating diagnosis is kind of opening the door to this world of trauma. And, the practitioner, the doctor has this amazing ability ability to be able to cushion the blow. And my experience with the retinal specialist was the blow was not cushioned one bit. So he put me back in the chair and was looking in my eye um, and said, oh, well, do you smoke? And I said, no, I don't smoke. And he said, okay, well, do you have someone here with you? and i knew that when he said that it was going to be bad news but i had no idea how bad the news was going to be so i said well i don't have anyone here with me but i have a brother-in-law i can call him and he said okay well it looks like you have a melanoma in your eye and i said what um, what is a melanoma is that cancer and he said yes it's cancer and i said is it bad and this is how little i knew about cancer i said is it the bad kind of cancer and he said well yes it's malignant um, so I was absolutely shocked. And then he went on to say that, um, I would most likely, the tumor was big and I would most likely have to have my eyeball removed, but he didn't say that. He said, you're most likely going to have to be a nucleated. And I had no idea what that meant, uh, because it was one of those doctor words that he should know better than to use. So I said, what does that mean? And he said, well, they'll, they'll probably just remove your eyeball. And from that moment, I was in complete shock and Um, it was, I felt the walls closing in on me. It was a terrifying moment and I just burst into tears and this doctor who, um, really didn't have great beds, had no bedside manner to speak of, left the examination room and left me in this room crying, um, having just heard the the big C word, um, and not being all alone and i remember the being alone part was absolutely terrifying so um i think that you know for for doctors later on in the future i wanted to make sure that they were well aware that um if they were going to deliver a a horrible or difficult diagnosis and they couldn't stay in the room that they had a nurse or an assistant come in so i just remember it being an absolutely horrifying experience Um, so I called my brother-in-law, he came out and the doctor refused to talk to me because I think he saw me as like this hysterical woman that he didn't want to talk to. So he waited till my brother-in-law came in and explained everything to him. Like I wasn't there. Um, so I am really big on when I talk about trauma and I talk about post-traumatic stress, making it very clear to providers, all the, and I deal with a lot of doctors now, oncologists, inocular oncologists and, um, people who do my scans and I make sure that they know what an impact they have on patients as far as delivering that kind of news. So that experience wasn't that great. But um, basically the way that I was feeling was um, a million different emotions. I was devastated. I, was conf- I didn't know much about this diagnosis. Um, I heard that it was really rare. I had no education on it. And I was in a state of shock. And once the shock was gone, I went through all of the anger and the depression and um, just was mad at the world, was really, really mad at the world and um, went through this process of grief that I'm sure most of you have heard of. There's the stages of grief and you don't kind of go gracefully through them All you bounce back and forth. And I went through these stages and they were horrendous. And there were times I couldn't get out of bed. And then when I got the genetic testing and found that I had the most aggressive form, I went through a whole other depression. So it was just, it was never ending. Um, And then after, you know, a really good maybe year of grieving and really focusing on my emotions and um, seeing a trauma therapist and doing EMDR and doing a lot of reading about the afterlife and and religious and spiritual beliefs. Um, I had this kind of, I don't, I don't, I want to call it kind of a light bulb moment where I went, okay, time is of the essence. And um, this is not such a devastating thing as it is kind of this lesson um, in teaching me, A, that I need to take care of myself and B, that um, I need to do everything that I've ever wanted to do. And all of a sudden, this fear that I had um, and things the fear that had stopped me from doing things that I really wanted to do was gone. And I thought, what the heck do I have to lose? So um, from there, I applied for a Ph.D. program at a research university, um, a great Ph.D. program at a really good school and was really shocked that I got into this program. And I think that was kind of the beginning of this. I want to study human resilience. I want to study human flourishing. As a clinical therapist, in 15 years as a therapist, I knew all about trauma. And I didn't want to focus on the trauma. I wanted to focus on what happened after the trauma. And I wanted to focus on people who had experienced, in my research, um, people who had experienced extreme life challenges. And rather than giving up or becoming depressed or um, even going through, you know, the the bucket list. I wanted to find people who had learned lessons and who had become the best versions of themselves that they could be. And through my research, I actually found that some of the most um, amazing human beings had actually experienced horrific trauma. And one of the reasons that they were amazing was because of the trauma and because of going through this grieving process. So. Next slide, please. So I have been obsessed with World War II for as long as I can remember, and I'm not sure why I'm a history buff, but one of my favorite authors and one of the greatest books that I've ever read was by Viktor Frankl, who was a Holocaust survivor when he was a young boy. And I read his book, Man's Search for Meaning, and he... Uh, is a psychotherapist and developed a form of psychotherapy called logotherapy, which is essentially um, searching for meaning in life and searching for your own personal meaning. So he gave a little bit of a, a backstory of his own and he recounted, and he was younger, but he recounted his experiences in one of the Nazi work camps, in the concentration camps, and made these observations about the people who were um, resigned to be there. So he talked about all of these horrific challenges and and his family being killed um, and all of these horrible things that he went through. But then he made observations about the people, the prisoners in these camps. And he kind of had them divided into two groups. And one group um, was the was the survival group. And the other group was what he called, and the term, I believe, is Muslim, is Muslimman I don't know the German pronunciation, but um, but it essentially means zombie people, and he kind of recognized that this was a group of people who were destined to die. They had no hope. Um, they couldn't find hope. They couldn't find um, any reason to keep. And I honestly don't blame them. I can't imagine being in that circumstance. But they couldn't find hope. They couldn't find meaning. And then the other group of people, um, even though they were just, they were they were just as bad off. They were going through the same torture. The same. They were starving. Um, the situation. The circumstances weren't any different. These people found some hope in the most challenging and awful circumstances. And these were individuals who, even though they'd have had everything taken from them, recognized that the one thing that they did have was their capacity for hope. And these were the people who survived. So when I read Man's Search for Meaning, um, it just made such a huge difference in my life and um, really, again, got me interested in resiliency and human flourishing. And instead of, again, looking at trauma and tragedy, examining all of the amazing things that can happen after trauma and challenges. And as a a therapist and a mental health clinician, we didn't focus on post-traumatic growth. I actually hadn't even heard of that until um, I started teaching. So this was kind of a new concept to me, Um, this amazing phenomenon of this this great personal growth that if we... If we really listen to the lessons that life teaches us, um, we gain so much insight, and we grow so much as people, and we learn so much. And as an educator and a clinician, that really resonated with me quite a bit. So, um, one of my favorite quotes from Viktor Frankl is, "When we are no longer able to change a situation, we are challenged to change ourselves." And to me, that again really resonated because, as OM survivors, you know, there's a we. We're, powerless to some, some things in our lives. And I think for some of us, we have the personalities where we don't like to resign. We don't like to give over our power. So to me, um, kind of hanging on to some power and some hope was, all right, I might not be able to change the circumstance, but I can change myself. And even though I have this, you know, not so great, um, what, you know, could be deadly, most likely will be deadly cancer. I can, um, change myself and make the best of it, just like these other people who I've read about in history books, these other survivors, flourishers, um, people who uh, were super resilient.
0: I'm gonna interject here because i I'm just as far as my my background goes, i I have been in music for a long time. Um, I've done a lot of singing, a lot of uh, choral singing. And one of the songs that we sang is actually, um, it's one of my favorite songs and I'll make sure that we link it in the show notes for this because it goes right along with, um, with what you're talking about. And it was actually, it was some words that were written, um, on the wall of a cellar by a Jew in one of the concentration camps and they were found and they've just been, they've just been inscribed and they've been left there, but they have been turned into music and it's an absolutely, um, It's just a beautiful song, but it's all about resilience and it's all about like the theme of it is just this idea that, um, well, I'll just read the words, but it just says, I believe in the sun, even when it's not shining. And I believe in love, even when there's no one there. And I believe in God, even when he is silent. And then it it goes on through and it has a few other different words, but the, the song that we sing in, in this choral group that I was in, um, I just remember how, like, I mean, that, that song has stuck with me for years Um, because it's just such, it it has such a profound impact that, that someone who is in, like you said, this horrific circumstance found hope. They found that tiny ray of sunshine. They looked for those things and they focused on them. And because they focused on them, they grew through what they were going through. Um, I love, I love that term of like grow through what you go through. And I think that's just such an important thing. And, And like what you were saying is we can't change the circumstance but we can change how we respond to it. We can change what we do with the information. How we, you know, how we move forward in life. Um, the different things that we choose to focus on, moving forward. So I love that.
1: Oh, that hit me right in the feels. So you're gonna uh, link that at the yes.
0: Event. I'll link the music and I'll I'll send it to you tonight so that you can listen to it as well. Cause it's, I mean, it's it's an absolutely like it's kind of like a haunting, chilling kind of a, a sound. But, but like when you understand the background of this story and who wrote it, I mean, it's, it's not, there's no person, nobody took, nobody claims it. Um, they probably passed away like at some point during this concentration camp because of just how difficult it was. Um, but just knowing, knowing that despite all of the things, um, despite all the obstacles that they found, that little ray of hope and that they just, they were so resilient that they, they refused even if the sun wasn't shining, even if God was silent, even if they didn't have anyone in their, in their group that loved them, like they were not going to give up.
1: Yeah. Uh, and I think that, I think human resiliency is just such an amazing and beautiful thing. And, you know, thank goodness. none Hopefully none of us are ever going to have to go through anything near as traumatizing as, Uh, what these individuals have but i think that's a and i I know we want to compare the the two but i think that's the voice of humankind i think that um so many of us strive to become better and strive to overcome and uh strive to better ourselves and to connect with other people so i love that and i think you know even though we'll never know who said that i think that's the voice of all suffering humans
0: Um, okay. So let me know when you need the next slide.
1: Next, please.
0: Okay. Perfect.
1: And I'm choked up a little bit, so.
0: No, it's okay. (laughs) If you need a minute, we're okay.
1: Oh, I'm okay. I'm used to, I'm used to bawling my eyes out over the, the, the feels that come with this because, um, well, speaking of which, um, suffering is one of the, the things that, Um, I really, I focused a bit on, like I said, I didn't want to focus a whole bunch on the trauma itself. But one of the things that I found was that suffering is so important. And it's a critical part of how we grow as human beings. And I think in Western society and the culture that we reside in, there's such this avoidance of any kind of pain, of any kind of hurt, of any kind of suffering. And we've lost track of how important suffering is Um, for us as as individuals, as communities, as humans, because um, it brings us closer to one another. It brings out the best in us. And I think that we're losing a lot of that because like I said, we reside in this society, in this culture where we avoid pain at all costs.
0: And one of the
1: mistakes that we're making is, is we're looking for happiness, just happiness. How do I be happy? how can I be happy? And we're not looking at, um, what is the work that I need to put in to become the best human that I can possibly be? So I think we're really missing the mark.
0: So I totally agree with you on that. And I, I wonder, have you seen the movie Inside Out?
1: I have. Yes. Okay.
0: So this is, this is, this is the whole theme of the entire movie. Joy. Joy is so important and she wants everything to be joyful and it all has to be joyful. Sadness is shunted to the side. She's shunned. She's kind of like, no, you're not, we don't want you here, sadness. You're not welcome here. Go away, sadness. Like you're ruining everything, sadness. But it's not until the end that that she realizes, like you said, that the suffering, the sadness, you know, that that base emotion of sadness, that was what brought people to to Riley in the movie and helped her to have that community and then find joy later because of the community. And sadness was the reason, it was the trigger for the other growth to happen. Um, They don't exist separately, they have to go together. Um, And I've also heard it said by, I think it's Brene Brown, she talks about how when we numb the dark, we also numb the light. Um, And I, I just think that's such an important thing because if we try to avoid all suffering, then we also avoid all joy by doing yes. that because they are they have to coexist. It's just the way that life works. I, I think I've heard people say sometimes that life is, if you could really cut it in half, life is 50% negative and 50% positive. And you have the good things and the bad things that happen, and they, they always exist for every single person. No one person in the entire world has only happy experiences. We all have a mixture and they shape who we are as people. So sorry, I will stop interrupting.
1: (laughs) No, I love your input. I love Brene Brown and I love that movie because I think that teaches kids such a great lesson about feeling um, and not to be afraid of suffering and grief and feeling sad and feeling angry. I, yes. So I love this. Oh, here's the, the thought that I had, and I we, so many of us today seem to live this very kind of mundane, empty experience, um, and we think that the way to get past this is to seek happiness, seek fulfillment, seek money, seek seek a better relationship. How can I be happy? And we're constantly chasing happiness um, at the expense of developing our character and finding true. And the the, the term that's used is is eudaimonia and that's an Arist- aristotle came up with that term and it just means living your best life um and i think that when we do the really really hard work of becoming the best person that we can it pays off and that's how we find joy and um i think that uh yeah do we just are chasing happiness and we're never going to find happiness when um when we're really just looking for material things, or the perfect relationship, or the perfect house, or if only I had a better job, or if only I could get this this raise. Um, One of my favorite, and I read this somewhere when I was studying eudaimonia. Again, Aristotle, and it's the term for living the most meaningful life you can and becoming the best version of yourself. Um, But it was something like happiness is what brings bliss, Um, eudaimonia is what brings blisters. So eudaimonia is not by any means the easy route, but it's the one that brings us the most meaning and the most fulfillment. And at some point, the joy. So why is suffering important? Because suffering allows for growth to occur. So I think just like the movie uh, about all of the emotions, I think it's so, and you know, and you hear emotionally intelligent people and people who are insightful and people who are really just progressive and amazing are the ones who recognize that they have this array of emotions and we need to embrace those emotions. Even though, And I don't like to say bad emotions and good emotions, I say difficult emotions because nobody wants the difficult emotions, but they're important, they're there for a reason and we can't ignore them. So Victor Frankl in 1965, Man's Search for Meaning said, suffering without a purpose leads to despair for any person whether they are average, disabled, or terminally ill. And many of us through our ocular melanoma diagnosis um, might be terminal, might be looking at the possibility of being terminal. Um, Many of us have lost significant vision. I lost, I already had bad eyes to start out with, but I lost vision in my right eye and have what's called monovision, which a lot of us have, and it's not easy to live with. But um, you have to find purpose in your suffering. And if you're just suffering without purpose, without meaning, then you're 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 going to be in that grieving process forever. And the whole purpose of the grieving process is to successfully move through it and and get past it. So we can't get to post traumatic growth unless we go through that grieving process. So. Um, when you're the first year that you're diagnosed going through the anger and the depression and the frustration and all of that is just absolutely critical and okay. And you have to be around people who normalize that. We have this toxic positive positivity in our culture where just look at the positive. And, um, I remember hearing that a lot when I was mad and I was depressed and it felt so frustrating and condescending, um, because I had just as everyone else does such a right to be mad and to be depressed and to be sad and to be irritated, and to be upset with whoever your higher power is. And that's actually all of it's really healthy to go through. Um, Okay, next, please. So humans are actually programmed to thrive, and we are hardwired to successfully move through difficult situations and trauma and tragedy, which is not to say that it doesn't have an impact on us, but um, we are definitely programmed to thrive. And I think that, you know, a lot of what I, when I was a a therapist, a clinician, um, and I studied the PTSD models, there was such an underestimation of this amazing human capacity that we have to not only survive, but to thrive um, during and following states of extreme adversity. And extraordinary as well as ordinary tragedy. So I would say that because OM is such a, a rare cancer that very few people have heard of. And, and you know, there hasn't been a lot of research and um, there's no cure. It's hard to connect with people and find people. I think that's a, a, an extraordinary tragedy. I think we have some additional stressors to that because, you know, we have an orphan cancer and it can feel very isolating and you can feel very alone. So. The construction of humans as resilient and enduring or fragile, passive and easily overwhelmed by events should not be viewed as an either or opposition. Human nature is both resilient and frail. This is one of my favorite uh and I probably need to to uh, cite it, but this is one of the one of the greatest things that I read in my research. I just think that we have such a black and white view of of human suffering and either you're strong and tough and you're resilient or you're weak and you're depressed and you resign and give up, which is not the case. Um, We as individuals go through all of that. I think that the strongest people are the people who have at some point broken down and been devastated and have ruined friendships because they're angry. I mean, I know for me, a lot of, I had a lot of anger and I would piss a lot of people off who wanted to, it was uncomfortable for them to see me unhappy and mad. And, um, not everybody, your support system, your friends, your family, not everybody's going to deal with that. And th- that's okay. If they can't handle you going through that range of emotions and being angry and upset and doing what you have to do to get through the grief, then, um,
0: yeah. And well, and like you said, it's, okay it's, it's uncomfortable, like in, in our, in our culture, like it's uncomfortable to, to be in like, be in this, in the space where someone is suffering or someone is experiencing grief. Um, I've actually uh, she was someone that we interviewed previously, but she's the widow of uh, an ocular melanoma patient who passed away about three years ago, I think. Um, his name is Ian, and she talks about how grief, like just just grieving like a physical person who dies, is so under it's just so underrepresented in our culture that when it when it is fully experienced, the way that it's meant to be experienced, there are a lot of times that people you know people are not able to hold space for that because it's just too awkward, too uncomfortable, too too unknown and and weird feeling for them to even accept that it could be a good thing um it's kind of that cognitive dissonance i think because we're so we're so programmed in our culture to think like well it's it's going to be okay and and to tell people things like oh you're you're so positive and just be strong and like it's going to be okay but like you said when when they say things like that it mitigates what we're actually going through and it lessens it it makes it it makes it somehow um feel like they don't they don't value our experience as we're going through it as, as, um, as highly as we feel like it needs to be valued.
1: Yes. Oh, I so agree with that. And I think well-intentioned people, um, will say the stupid, (laughs) the stupidest things to you that will just make you so angry. Um, I used the word jokingly homicide. I felt like I wanted to homicide people who would say things like, like God would give you more than you can handle. And I had one of my friends who is actually a trauma therapist said to me, you know, anyone can go out and get, you never know if you're going to go out and get hit by a bus. It could happen to anyone. And I said to her, Oh, well, really, how would you feel about going out if you had 80% chance of getting hit by a bus, just being so angry and so mad. And yeah, you can give, I recognized, I, I, I gave people grace eventually and recognized their intentions were well, but Man, when it was still raw, it would piss me off. it would make me so angry, and I actually lost some people in my life um, who tried to tell me what I needed to do to heal. Who tried to tell me how I needed to talk to my children. Um, and you will find that you you know you have people coming out of the woodwork to support you, and those are kind of the unlikely people. You know, I had I had to tell my students, I had to tell my my clients because I was teaching and doing therapy at the time what was going on because I couldn't be a therapist anymore while I was going through my trauma. Um, so I had a I had a private practice that I that I quit um, before I got treatment, um, and I was very honest with my two students and told them what was going on, um, and stopped teaching for a minute while I was getting treatment. But the most supportive and amazing people were my students and my clients, and the people who were supposed to be the experts, my friend who was the trauma therapist was the most condescending and icky. So you never know who's going to come out of the woodwork and just, um, just be there for you. And unfortunately, who can't handle your stuff and has to go. And I, to them, I I say, I lovingly, I lovingly release them. But you know, one of the great things after my diagnosis was so much love and so much support. And man, that got me through a lot. All right, are we doing okay on time or am I blabbering on and on?
0: Uh, I think that we're okay. Um, Yeah, I think we're okay.
1: I will go ahead then and dive into some of the research that I've done because I have learned so much and that's actually what I wanna share. Um, I learned so much from, the research participants. So the process that I went through, um, I used this assessment called the post-traumatic growth inventory, and it measured these different factors and these domains that led to post post-traumatic growth. Um, and the factors, the four factors leading to post-traumatic growth, uh, brutally honest optimism, which means it's not optimism. Doesn't mean toxic positivity. It means that, you face reality. I had to face reality that I have an 80% chance of um, metastasizing to my liver. And um, when people told me not to think about it or not, it pissed me off because I had to think about it. I have children, I have um, student loans that <laughs> someone's going to get left with. So brut- brutally honest optimism is not toxic positivity. It's looking at your situate your circumstances in a very honest way but being optimistic. Um, Having some sort of perception of control over events, uh, we examine different coping styles, what worked, um, and a strong sense of self knowing who you are. So the five domains of post-traumatic growth, personal strength, relationships, appreciation for life, looking at new possibilities, and spiritual development. So I administered this post-traumatic growth inventory to members of our ocular melanoma group and the members that I wanted to, um, include in my, in this pilot study that I did were, uh, people who had the same aggressive form of ocular melanoma that I had or that I have. So, um, I limited my study to, and I don't want to downplay how significant, uh, The less aggressive one is, but I really wanted to focus on people who had metastasized or um, people who had experienced the stress of of the the really aggressive one. Okay, next, please. So this is what I learned from them. And um, after I selected a few of the people who had scored the highest on the post-traumatic growth inventory, meaning that they had demonstrated the most post-traumatic growth, um, after real significant trauma, like I said, it was the class is it typed? No, it's class B. Class B ocular melanoma. I wanted to research the ones who had
0: um, the class two.
1: Class two, yes, thank you. The more the more uh, aggressive ones who had the most challenges dealing with this diagnosis. Um, so after I had selected those who had scored the highest on the post-traumatic growth inventory, I interviewed them around their relationships, around their coping styles around their spirituality. Um, I asked them a bunch of open-ended questions too. I was really frank and direct. What is it that got you through this? And if you could talk to individuals who are newly diagnosed, what would you tell them? And every one of those interviews, I left just feeling so, and, and I don't even know the enriched and, and wiser and the, the wisdom that these particular individuals bestowed upon me, it was. I just left feeling emotionally. My heart was full. So, I learned so so much. Um, the one thing that all of these individuals talked about, um, who had who had flourished, and who are continuing not just flourished but are continuing to flourish, talked a lot about their support system. So we know in the world of counseling psychology that a support system is critical to good mental health. But um, These individuals oftentimes had partners, had spouses, and have said that their partners, their spouses, their significant others, it actually, this, this cancer thing, this tragedy strengthened their relationship. And we know from statistics that cancer does the opposite on marriages. There's a high rate of divorce from cancer. Um, so to hear these individuals say this actually made us grow closer was pretty amazing. So they talked about their support system. They did a lot of talking about giving back. So it was very important. And if you're at all familiar with twelve step recovery programs, um, one of the state, one of the, one of the uh, steps is giving back um, to others. And there's there's just this very healing, um, this healing component to giving back to others. And it allows us to get out of our own heads and our own misery when we focus on other people and doing for them. So a lot of them talked about giving back in different ways, whether it was in their church, their community, to the OM group, but that was very important. Um, another really important piece, well, there was a couple that I want to talk about, was self-compassion. So having love for yourself and patience and allowing yourself to go through these stages of grief with, without judging yourself, and recognizing that it's okay to embrace all of those emotions. Um, the self-compassion thing was huge for myself. And feel free to share if you want. For myself, um, and I'm re- I'm a- honestly pretty open about my own mental health issues. I I deal with depression. Um, and with depression comes a lot of self-loathing and a lot of self-hatred. And you don't know why. You hate yourself. you just part of depression and it sucks. Um, but I remember going through this, this really painful, awful treatment and in the middle of it, um, I just felt this intense self-love. Like I cannot believe I'm going through such a difficult day. I'm surviving this. I'm sure. And I felt so much, and this was such an alien feeling to me, just feeling compassion for myself and self-love. So, um, they talked about self-compassion quite a bit. Uh, oh, I totally one, relate cool. to that too, just oh, cause, go ahead.
0: Yeah. well, I just, one of the things I think ironically ended up helping me through like my, my treatment for my eye, cause my eye treatment was very painful as well. Um, mm-hmm. And one of the things that I just kind of would always, I would fall back on, like it was, it was hard. And I had, I had lots of times that I acknowledged, like, and told, you know, told people, this is really hard. This sucks. I had a lot of things happen that week, just unrelated to my eye that also kind of complicated the week. (laughs) And, um, that was fun. Wouldn't recommend. But, um, but the, the one thing that I kept falling back on was just like nine months prior to that, I had had a baby and, I had un- unwillingly <laughs> had a natural childbirth, <laughs> and like didn't didn't plan on it. Didn't really expect that it was going to happen, but there just wasn't any time for the actual epidural, and so my baby was born very fast. <laughs> and I did it, and um, and for months, like every everything that was hard, you know, postpartum depression, anything like that, it was it was kind of like because I had done this, I could pull on that experience, and I could say, okay, I'm. I'm strong enough to have gone through this. I didn't think I was, but apparently I was. And so if I can do this, then I can also do this. Like it just it became kind of my pattern of like, oh, you're getting your ears pierced, like no big deal. Like you've had a you've had a baby naturally. Oh, you have like a plaque in your eye, no big deal. You've had a baby naturally. Like you can you can handle this. And it was, you know, obviously a very different kind of pain, but it just it became my comparison that like I would I would tell myself, like, look what you already did isn't that, isn't that worth recognizing? Like it was, it was just kind of this, like you said, it was kind of a foreign thing to me that I was, I was still in the, in the process. And I'm, I still, I still have to consciously do that sometimes, um, to consciously kind of award myself recognition and self-compassion and say, this is allowed to be hard. It's allowed to be hard to have a toddler and, and an eight year old and a six year old and be going through a, a cancer diagnosis and to Go through every new milestone and and hope with each of the older kids that I also get to see it with the younger kids. Like it's allowed to be hard, but I've also done these other hard things, and so I can I can do this. Uh, it's kind of that's kind of the mentality that I've just had to keep adopting, like over and over and over with new things and new triggers and all the things. <laughs>
1: Well, interestingly enough, that's another thing that I found with my with the flourishers was that they just like he had experienced multiple challenges in their lifetime. So I think in the world of clinical psychology, we go, "Oh my gosh, the more trauma you deal with and the more tragedy, the the more worn down you become, the the weaker you become." Which again is certainly not to say that trauma doesn't have a huge impact on us because it does, but um all of my my flourishers as I call them, my my thrivers, my flourishers um, said the exact same thing, that this was, this whole trauma tragedy was nothing new to them. They had recounted challenges that they had had throughout their entire lives. So they knew how to cope. They knew, um, they knew what they needed to do and they knew how to kind of gather up their strength. And one of the things that they also said, rather than feeling this self-defeat and this why me, which is certainly normal. And you definitely go through that during the grief, you get pissed off and you do the why me and this, and that's normal, but they came out of it with this. Um, all right, I've got this. Um, I'm going to learn from it. I'm going to grow from it and I'm going to, I'm going to do the best that I can with it. So there was not this sense of why me. And at the end, I mean, I think initially all of us go through that, but at the end it was just this great self-compassion in this, this is, of course, this is really challenging, but I'm strong enough and I know I can get through this. So, um, another one was, uh, coping strategies. And one of the the biggest coping strategies was humor. And I've always, if you work in my field, you kind of adopt this dark humor and it gets you through and it scares some people (laughs) off. Now that I have a really dark sense of humor. That's my coping strategy. But laughter really is as silly as it sounds. Laughter really is the best medicine. And these are people who don't want to be sad, who don't want to live their lives being upset. They want to laugh and they want to experience joy. So one of the big coping mechanisms um, was joy. Um, another big one was having, and speaking of support systems, was having trust in their medical professional. So Viewing their, finding the right medical professional, whether it's an ocular oncologist, an oncologist, a retinal specialist, finding that person, that medical professional who will advocate for them and who has the same vision that they do um, and who will be brutally honest. One of the, my, my uh, ocular oncologist, Alison um who just, I, is the most amazing human being. And she has been absolutely wonderful through this ordeal. She will not sugarcoat anything. Um, she will be honest and encouraging. So when I said to her, I can't believe I have an 80% chance of this metastasizing, this sucks. How am I supposed to move forward? Knowing this, she said, you know what? And you also have a 20% chance of never having to deal with this again. And that had such a big impact on me because she was not that toxic positivity, but she was so encouraging. She advocated for me, um, I didn't want to have my eye removed. I wanted to do the plaque and she said, I'll do it. If that's what you want to do, I'm gonna do everything I can to save your eye. The eye hurts all the time and maybe it wasn't the best decision, but at the time she advocated for me and she and and she was great. So well, yeah, I think that's having such an trust in your thing. medical
0: No, yeah. I, I'm I'm the same way. And I feel like our doctors probably would be very good friends.
1: Yeah. <laughs> our personal
0: our personal ocular oncologists would get along very well. They probably know each other, wow. to be honest. Um,
1: yeah, yeah, it's a small community.
0: Yeah, it really is, uh, but I think, like you said, that that's that's just such a good point in having having trust in someone. But I like I like how you said that she she was brutally honest, but she was also like, okay, yes, this is here. This is this is information that we have. This is this is kind of what my my doctor has always said is she's like, yes, you have this information from your biopsy that tells you that you're the highest risk, and you also are a totally unique individual, and you could have. To never deal with this again. This could be, you know, like you, like you said, you, this could not be your story. The statistic doesn't make doesn't make it happen. Um, it's it's just, I mean, it's it's just kind of the flip of the coin for everybody, and it could just as easily not be me as as nice. as much as the chance could be, you know. So so just kind of like you said, like like falling back on that and having having a medical professional who will ground you in that and say, yes, this is possible, and so is this. They're both equally possible.
1: Yes, and well, and I think you're so accurate with it. Really, is the flip of a coin. One of the things I hate hearing is, "You're beating cancer. You're stronger than cancer." Well, oh, that's bullshit. I'm just lucky, to be honest. I'm just I lucked out. I'm doing the best I can, just like most of us are doing the best I can. Um, I'm living my best life, but I'm not fighting any harder than someone who has metastasis is fighting. It really is the flip of the coin. And you, speaking of brutal honesty, you have to recognize that you can impact it a bit, you know, you can be as healthy as possible and manage your stress. And I'm convinced that that plays a part um, in our, obviously in our quality of life but in our well-being too, but it really is, it really is the flip of a coin. And um, yeah, I've always been really bothered by that. You're beating cancer and you're stronger than cancer, because that just seems to downplay um, the fight that my fellow ocular melanoma survivors are going through who have done the clinical trials that I haven't done, who have been healthier than I've been, who have done everything right, because I certainly haven't. I drink a bottle of wine a week and I don't know if I should. <laughs> I drink, I have a drink, I eat sugar, I do all the things that they tell you you're not supposed to do. And it helps my mental well-being. But at the same time, there are people who have done way better than I do. And it's just, it, it really is the flip of the coin. Anyhow, I'm glad you brought, that's just kind of one of my soap boxes. But um, a couple more that I wanted to bring up uh, critical self-evaluation was one of those self-compassion, um, a, a really interesting one. And I, and I, this was one of the themes that came out. It, I, I titled it rebirth. So these, uh, flourishers, these participants, all of them talked about this kind of starting over. So life as you know it, and you, I'm sure that you went through, everyone goes through this life as you know, it is gone you are spending the rest of your life knowing that this is a cancer that potentially lives in your blood, that could come, that could metastasize at any time, um, that you're gonna be doing scans, you're gonna have to manage your scanxiety. you're gonna have to uh, manage this constant kind of anxiety around this cancer that at best is NED, no evidence of of disease, uh, never really in remission. So you are literally, you are reborn and you, Either you adapt to it or you don't. So I know that there are some people who say, I this sucks and they never quite get over this new life. And my flourishers, my thrivers are the ones who say, yeah, this sucks. They'll acknowledge it sucks. We all acknowledge it sucks, but they accept it. And acceptance is such a big part of flourishing. And that doesn't mean resigning yourself or giving in or giving up. It means... Radical acceptance is a term that we use and you just accept it and you don't question why it is. You do what you need to do and it's part of your life. Um, let's see, Just a minute. There's one more, of course, that I can't see. I don't know if you can read that. It's this green one right here on the, speaking of bad vision.
0: Um, I can read it. It says critical self-evaluation.
1: Okay, so critical self, so constantly, evaluating your own values your own moral system um what's important to you in life and this feels so uh, familiar (laughs) (laughs) it should i hope it feels familiar to everybody and if it doesn't feel familiar i hope it gives people some direction um but going through that constant self-evaluation and maybe deciding that something you were taught didn't really work for you um Maybe your belief system change. when you're facing your mortality, your belief system changes. So I was raised in I was raised um, in a Mormon Church and a Catholic Church, and I love religion. I study religion; it's one of my favorite things. But I adopted Buddhist principle, and that's I started becoming very active in Buddhism and reading about it and understanding the principle and wanting to live by it. And that's something that I never would have thought that I that I'd be we interested. Had in. We gotta talk. Yeah. <laughs> you, so you're familiar. I yeah, am very familiar. Uh, um, all, of, all of my thrivers talked about, not necessarily Buddhism, but talked about meditation and mindfulness mm-hmm. and acceptance of all of their emotions. So whether they knew it or not, they were. And Buddhism isn't a religion. It's a set of principles we live by. So there's, no, there's not necessarily, you probably know a deity that we worship. Um, it's just about being a good person and living, minimizing your suffering. So even though my uh, participants some of them brought up Buddhist philosophy and Buddhist principles, but many of them were talking about meditation and mindfulness and didn't know it, but they had already adopted some Buddhist principles. So Buddhism principles, you can stick with your religion, whether that's Christian, and that's what I love about it. There's Christian Buddhists, there's Jewish Buddhists, and um, I just love the principles and it has changed my life so much and has brought me so much comfort. So you know, you kind of reevaluate your, reevaluate your values and what's important to you. And one of the beautiful gifts that came from this stupid cancer was, um, I no longer sweated the small stuff. Like the little things didn't matter. Petty little arguments with family members or, um, little things that would get me all wound up did not matter anymore. Suddenly. And this was probably one of the best gifts. Suddenly, um, the real important things kind of were very clearly in front of me and the petty things did not matter. And that really made me, you know, a better person as well. So,
0: yeah. I love that. So I, I can, love this I can research. Relate to a lot of that.
1: Yeah. And I'm hoping that when people hear this, that they can relate and it does normalize their experience. Um, and if they haven't reached a place where they have felt okay enough to go through a grieving process, that they, they feel comfortable doing that and they recognize that the anger and the being pissed off at people and <laughs> is totally normal and, feel, and they feel okay about it. So I just, I, you know, and I would like to, and I always end this with, I'm just so grateful for, um, my ocular melanoma family who was there for me when I was first diagnosed. Um, when I was lost, when I had no hope, when I had no education, Um, when I was depressed at night, there was a couple of my ocular melanoma friends that I would be messaging late at night with a glass of wine crying. And man, this is a tight family. And, um, not only have they supported me and been there for me, but they allowed me to kind of get inside their brains and their souls and, and gave me so much wisdom that hopefully will be helpful to pass along. So I like ending it with a big, huge thank you to my OM family, who is just as important as my family, family and finding your flourish and making the bigger soul searching changes in your life. And this whole, and this is essentially what eudaimonia is, but, um, if nothing else gives you reason to do that, then I think ocular melanoma really gives you a reason
0: yeah. to do all the stuff. Oh, you I love that. To do. I think that's such a good point. Um, uh, it's kind of, it. it puts the it just puts life in perspective of like, if you're waiting for, like you said, if you're chasing happiness and you're, or you're waiting for the right time to do something mm-hmm. or for, for the opportunity to present itself later, like you just, you stop wanting to wait. You want to take, you know, take the trip. You want to do the fun things. You want to have the experiences because you realize, you know, with that kind of uh, brutal honesty that you talked about, you realize you don't have the guarantee and right. why take the chance? Like, yeah. and, and really why, why wait, why wait to experience it later? Like what's, what's the point? Um, I think I have uh, it's kind of a different topic, but like I have a friend who she started realizing how much of a, a money, um, scarcity mindset that she had. And this idea that like, she was so afraid to spend money and it took a while before her, I think her, she said her husband just pointed out to her, you know, we make money so that we can use it. <laughs> Like, we don't make it to hoard it and never be able yes, to experience yes, anything yes, with it. And um, obviously, like, we need to be smart. We need to do those kinds of things. But just just uh, recognizing you don't have to, you know, hoard, hoard your ability to be happy or to experience things because you're too afraid to try them or to, you know, to risk something. Um, right. and, and I think that's, that's just part of, part of the gift of this diagnosis, at least for me, and it sounds like for you and for many of the other people you've talked to is just realizing that we can choose to live with and, and do the things that we want to focus on. Um, and, and that, that that doesn't have to be on the same timeline as someone else, right? So like you you had a pretty abrupt shift in some ways. You went back to you went back to school. You started pursuing this resiliency research and human flourishing. And someone else might like you and, and, and like you you might have some some waves in that over the next, say the next five years. You know, like you said, you're going back into teaching clinic clinic, or you're um, you were teaching and now you're practicing as a clinician again, that that's gonna affect, you know, probably the way that your research looks and, and some of those things, like things are gonna kinda ebb and flow. Um, I know for me, like when I first got diagnosed, like I started writing a book. And I still, it's not that I don't want to write the book, but I have kind of, like you said, I've been able to have that self-compassion and recognize I'm just in a different season of like, I'm riding a different wave right now that is important to me and is allowing me to contribute. And, but it's, it's really just kind of about that perspective and about finding, finding that awareness yourself so that you can see what you're doing in your life actually is, you know, what you want to do. And just kind of really accepting that and taking ownership of that.
1: Oh, man, and recognizing that ebb and flow is so critical. And I think in the spirit of authenticity, uh, because I'm always brutally honest about it's not easy to talk about my own mental health issues as a psychology instructor and a therapist. But um, just in the spirit of authenticity, man, for for uh, the past three years, I was killing it, getting almost done with my Ph.D., uh, killing it as a teacher. My students really like me. I'm getting back into the field. And then I hit Probably one of the worst depressions of my life, um, where just in the middle of all of this, I got some bad medical news. It was a scan where they thought that I had metastasized, but in fact, I hadn't after going. And even after I found out the good news that there hadn't been metastasis, I was devastated. I couldn't bounce back. I went through a horrible depression, um, awful depression, but was able to, again, pull yourself out of it. And when you're in kind of the throes of that sadness and depression, you believe that you're never going to get out of it and you do with the help of you know your friends and and your support system your therapist and your whoever but there is always the ebb and flow. And yeah, I think sure. it's, it's I, and I like being honest about that because I think from the outside on paper, I probably look like I've got it together, but I don't. So <laughs> I always like being oh, yes. real Disclaimer. honest about how fallible, how failable, whatever the word is. I'm very, I, I do a lot of falling down, a lot, and picking myself back up. And that's eudaimonia. That's resilience, right? Yeah,
0: exactly. Oh, no, that's just like exactly what we were talking about before <laughs> when I was talking about tattooing resilience on my arm.
1: Yeah yes, yes. Yeah. yep
0: okay well katie this was amazing and i'm so glad that we got to do this again um and i'm sorry the recording didn't work out the last time but hopefully this one will be much better quality everything looks good on my end uh i'm good. gonna go okay. ahead and um just say thank you and hopefully we can have you back another time um oh, so that's... thank you again
1: yes it was a pleasure it was so much fun i love talking about the research and connecting with my with my OMI, so thank you oh so
0: speaking of um ocular melanoma patients, uh, everyone else in our community, how would you prefer that they reach out to you if they want to connect with you personally? Do you want them to go through social media or do you want to link your email in the show notes? Um, what would you prefer?
1: Oh, I can link my email. Um, okay. and also I'm on Facebook and, uh, messenger. I talk to a lot of people through Facebook. Um, I can leave my, my personal email, my work email. Um, I'm always open to talking to my my fellow peeps and okay. really, awesome. really good about getting back and building relationships there. So I can be both
0: of those. That's wonderful. Yeah. We'll make sure that that's available in the show notes for people to go ahead and find, um, so that they can contact you if they'd like, because mm-hmm. I know, I mean, I feel like it, it helps when you're in the kind of the throes of the hard stuff. It helps to talk to someone who is just a few steps ahead. Um, in terms of their, you know, their journey through this and in, in experiencing it and kind of carrying it and, and learning. Like I, I've had, I've had some patients who they're, they're new patients. So they come and they talk to me. They're like, how are you like functioning? How are you, how are you like doing okay? I'm like, I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't at the beginning. So just know that that, you know, like you said that that's normal, but it's, it's not so much that it gets easier. It's more that I think we just, we grow in resiliency and we get a little bit stronger yes. each time we learn and and as we utilize those kind of resiliency strategies we learn how to carry it better and to carry it differently kind of like you know if you carry your backpack on one shoulder and you learn like oh my back actually feels better if I carry it with two like this is much better like a totally different experience backpack still weighs the same but I'm carrying it differently yes
1: Um, oh I love that analogy yeah it's great
0: so I feel like that that can help, though, to, to talk with someone else. It can be kind of that catalyst to to realize, okay, this is what's possible. That, yes, this is normal, but I also have the ability to, like you said, grow as a person and go through this and find meaning and find purpose in in life despite what this obstacle is presenting for me. So, um, So thank you again, Katie. Thank you so much for joining us today on the I Believe podcast, brought to you by Castle Biosciences and produced by Agora Media. Please be sure to subscribe, and if you're so inclined, send this episode over to friends, family, and share on your social media to help spread awareness around OM. If you have a moment, leave us a brief review or consider making a donation to the links in the show notes to keep our podcast going. Feel free to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Acure Insight. We'll see you next time on the I Believe podcast.